From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We come to know this entire period until the destruction of the temple in the year 70 by the Romans as Second Temple Judaism. That's how we refer to the texts, to the different factions within Judaism of the time. What made that Second Temple great was that Herod the Great himself had begun its extensive renovation during the time of his reign. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he is also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, Paul, Mary, and James. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Professor Bruce Chilton, welcome to Things Not Seen. Many thanks, David. So I, long-time listeners know that occasionally I get the chance to teach both Old Testament and New Testament courses, and I have occasionally struggled with some of the historical pieces around the texts, and I just have to say that I felt like your book, The Herods, was a tour de force, because pieces that had been confusing to me or that I had misunderstood through most of my teaching career suddenly came into crystal clarity and achieved a new kind of force in terms of their importance and their gravity to the gospel texts just by way of reading it. So first of all, I just want to thank you for the time and effort that you put into this book. It's really magnificent. Well, I do appreciate that very much, especially because what you say corresponds to my hopes for what was going into the project. For many years, I've had to deal with individual members of the Herodian family because of a particular research interest that I had, whether it was Jesus or Mary Magdalene or Paul. But by putting it together, it seems to me that one can understand the history of the period, not from the point of view of the politically marginal players, but from the point of view of those who actually wielded power. And we'll get into that shift in perspective, which I think you rearranged some of those expectations for me in the course of reading your book, The Herods. But I'd actually like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. So there's a passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's in Mark 5. And Jesus goes to the countryside, and he encounters 
a person who is not just demon-possessed, but possessed by a number of demons, and in fact goes on to say a legion of demons. And in the course of freeing this man from demon possession, the demons flee and they're shouting to Jesus, don't send us out of the country, don't send us out of the country. They end up going into a herd of swine that's nearby, and then the swine rush into the water and drown themselves. And I've taught this passage for a number of years, trying to give some historical context, but what I'd really love is for us to take a few minutes and begin to unpack that story. First of all, in a country that is ruled by Torah, where the eating of swine or even the contact with swine and pigs is forbidden, what is a herd of swine doing on the Judean countryside? Swine really are a primary symbol of what is impure, what is as you say, contrary to the Torah, and all the more so during the first century of the Common Era. The reason for that is that Judaism had lived through the attempt by the Seleucid regime in the second century before the Common Era to convert the worship of the temple to Judaism. They actually set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. They had swine offered there, and they attempted to force people who practiced Judaism to consume swine. So this was really what brought pigs into the very center of the attention of what was unclean within Judaism. If you read the Torah itself, pigs are actually no worse than rabbit or other animals, which don't pass the test of what is genuinely clean. But the Seleucids had really made it into the very picture of impurity. Unfortunately, swine was also a favored meat among the Romans, and the Romans had inherited power on the ground within territorial Israel. Something very interesting about this story in itself is that Jesus is described as going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That is, he is moving from Galilee proper across the sea into what was acknowledged at the time to be non-Jewish Gentile territory. So that makes it less surprising that they were pigs in the vicinity. And also it explains why the pigs asked to remain there. That is, the demons want to remain in the area that they had actually been dwelling in. So this is really interesting, and you're giving me even now pieces of the story that I hadn't understood before. I now, uh, let me just take a quick break and reintroduce you. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Bruce Chilton of Bard College. We're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Let's stay with this for just a moment. So the demons refer to themselves as legion. Now, I have thought about this and even taught that this is a reference in a not-so-veiled way to the 10th Roman legion, a marine legion, amphibious, they worked both on sea and on land, also sometimes referred to as the Fratensis legion, and and that that Jesus was in part symbolically throwing out the, the 10th Roman legion from the lands. Now, when I make that kind of move, Am I staying with the the historical facts on the ground, or have I missed some pieces with this reference to legion in this Mark 5 text? 
I think the term legion is designed to associate the uncleanness of the swine with the occupation of the Romans, which was by way of legions, not only the 10th Fratensis, but also others during the course of the history of that period. I think that anyone hearing this story would have recognized the allusion to the Romans. And it's especially striking that this joins other elements of the story that underline that this is a confrontation between Jesus and uncleanness itself. The man is described as inhabiting a cemetery, which is a place of uncleanness, as wounding himself, which means that blood comes to his skin, which also makes him unclean. There's basically no mistaking the desire to increase the register of impurity within this story and to insist that Jesus is incompatible with that status. Now, what we're doing here, and listeners who are just joining the conversation, I want to make sure that they're following the moves that we're making. So there's often an impression that the Gospels, the stories in the Gospels, were written very soon after the events themselves, and they're pretty much a, a, a base historical account of the events as they unfolded. One of the claims that you are making in your book, The Herods, and you get to this in about the middle of the text, after you've already developed much of the historical background of the Herodian dynasty, one of the claims that you make is that these really don't function as historical stories. They utilize history, but they bring them in a very symbolized way. Now, that's my word, not your word, so perhaps you'd say it in a different way. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you are claiming that the gospel texts are being rearranged for purposes to describe realities that are greater than simply the historical facts on the ground. In this particular case, the story of the man who is possessed of a legion of demons, we're dealing with a source which is especially interested in Jesus' role as exorcist. It includes other moments, such as the first exorcism story in the Gospel according to Mark. These stories share characteristics. They typically relate to specific places in and around the Sea of Galilee. They, of course, are engaged with the question not only of exorcism, but also of impurity. And in one way or another, they appear to have a connection to Mary Magdalene, who was the only person within the Gospels to be named as having been treated by Jesus in view of her exorcism. She is the origin of a source of stories whose purpose is to explain to early Christian practitioners how to go about the confrontation with evil. And that's an example of the way in which sources formed prior to the Gospels and were passed on orally. Their purpose is not simply to convey information, but to use the tradition about Jesus to apply that tradition for specific aims. In this particular case, exorcism is clearly in view. And it's very interesting in terms of what we were saying earlier on, that Mary Magdalene herself perished as a result of the invasion of the Roman legions at the time of the revolt of Israel against Rome. 
Well, and in mentioning Mary Magdalene, you actually bring up her case in your book, The Herods. She's, in the accounts of the Gospels, she's reported as being possessed by seven demons herself, and you make some connections there. You say she's Mary from Magdala, and Magdala has geographic proximity to certain Roman powers, and you actually draw connections between these seven demons, if I'm recalling correctly, and again, these kind of symbolic impositions of Roman and pagan authority onto the Judean countryside. Now, I may be misremembering that, so I'd invite you to correct me where I'm wrong, and please tell us some more about that. No, and you're, you're not wrong at all. It's crucial to understand Mary's own situation from the town of Magdala, which refers to there being a structure there which was used for the purposes of drying fish. That was a very easy walk from what became the city of Tiberias. Tiberias was actually founded within her lifetime, and it was established, as the name makes plain, in order to honor the emperor Tiberius. It was the principal new work of one of the sons of Herod the Great, whose name was Antipas. Antipas made a career and attempted to advance his career by currying favor with the emperor Tiberius. So he went about building this city in a highly Hellenistic manner. This caused opposition to him within Galilee, but that opposition was galvanized when during the course of construction it was plain that to establish Tiberius, Antipas was actually taking over part of the grounds of a cemetery. So of course, by definition, among the Pharisees in particular, that made the entire city unclean. The consequence was that Antipas who once he began a project was very stubborn, simply decided that he would offer property free to people who would come and establish residence in this new city of Tiberias. It took a good generation for there to be anything like acceptance of the city within the environs of Galilee. So the picture of the cemetery in particular, in the story of the man with the legion, is also an allusion to events of the period. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary, and James. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder politics, and the art of succession. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary Magdalene, and James. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Well, your book deals with a dynasty of rulers in Judea and Israel during a period. And in fact, you mentioned that this is the, really the last succession of Judaic kings ever in history. One of the things that I didn't realize about the Herods and that I learned from your book was that Herod and his father Antipater, both, I, I had always thought that they were pagan kings. I realize now that they are part of a Jewish line of succession and that they were part of the vying for theocratic rule there in and around Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, but maybe on the way to getting there, let's start with the consolidation of Jewish worship and Jewish royal ideology is really tied up with a battle in the ancient world for going from multiple gods to one god and multiple places of worship to one place of worship, Jerusalem. So perhaps if you could tell us briefly about that consolidation of divinity into one god and the consolidation of location into Jerusalem as a way of starting the conversation. Yes, at the time that Antipater and after him, Herod came to power, the way had really been prepared by the family known as the Maccabees. The Maccabees had led a successful revolt against the Seleucid power, which came from the East during the second century before the Common Era. The Seleucids had attempted to change the worship of Israel itself to make it Hellenistic. They had tried to outlaw the Torah and to establish their own style of polytheistic worship in Jerusalem. But the Maccabees not only resisted, they also conquered. And their success was extraordinary. By the end of the second century, before the Common Era, the Maccabees controlled more land than David and Solomon had. And they had established that worship in Jerusalem would be to the honor of the God of Israel alone. This was, without any question, a theocratic power. They ruled, actually, principally as high priests, and only in the second place as kings. Now, the family of Herod the Great came into focus as a result of the Maccabees, because the Maccabees, in the course of extending their power, had actually claimed the old land of Edom, known from the Greek term as Idumea, they had claimed Edom or Idumea as belonging to their hegemony. And in order to execute 
their desires, they needed to have people on the ground. This included the Idumean family of Antipater. Now, because he came from ancient Edom, and Edom had once upon a time uh, been an adversary of Israel, this meant that at a later time, political opponents of the Herods would say that they were not really Jews. The term they used was half-Jews. And they would say they were Idumeans, and as such, not really practitioners of Judaism in full faith. This is propaganda against them. But interestingly, it's successful propaganda because, as you rightly say, even in the modern period, the Herods are not seen as practitioners of Judaism. This is profoundly misleading because they themselves were not only loyal in their own practice, following the traditional customs such as circumcision, keeping the Sabbath. At the same time, they often took risks and engaged in extraordinarily heroic measures in order to serve Judaism. For example, we come to know this entire period until the destruction of the temple in the year 70 by the Romans as Second Temple Judaism. That's how we refer to the texts, to the different factions within Judaism of the time. What made that Second Temple great was that Herod the Great himself had begun its extensive renovation during the time of his reign. He made it the single largest structure for sacrifice in the entire ancient world, and he did so for the worship of Israel. Later, in the year 40, in one of the most insane imperial acts ever, the emperor Caligula announced that he wanted to put a statue of himself in that temple. Herod the Great was long dead, but his son, his grandson, Herod Agrippa, was on the scene, knew Caligula, and it was his intervention that helped to prevent Caligula from going ahead with his attempt, basically, to desecrate the temple. So there was Herod the Great himself, his grandson, Herod Agrippa, and then his great-granddaughter, Berenike, was in Jerusalem, literally barefoot, in front of the Roman procurator at the time, during the 60s, just before the outbreak of the war against Rome, she undertook a Nazarite vow in the temple in order to plead with the Roman procurator on the basis of sanctity that he should change his policies and avert warfare. Now, many of the things that the Herodians did contradicted Judaism, because after all, they were rulers within the Roman world. And as such, they often made compromises, as did many within the practice of Judaism at the time. They also ran afoul of differing factions of Judaism. They ran afoul of Pharisees. They ran afoul of Sadducees. They were often at tension with Essenes. They sometimes persecuted Christians. 
But that didn't make them less Jewish. That made them practitioners of a different kind of Judaism than became traditional. But I think there's no doubting their basic cultural commitment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bruce Chilton, the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Well, you've just said something that I want to linger on for a moment. You said that there's no question that they were Jewish. And I think at the time, from a Roman standpoint, or from the standpoint of any other occupying empire, all of the different factions on the ground were Jewish. But one of the things that just sort of strikes out very clearly from your book, The Herods, is that from group to group, they would look at one another, whether they were Essenes or Sadducees or Yodemeans or any number of these different groups, they would look at one another and say, you don't use the right calendar, you're not worshiping on the right days, you don't have the right attention to the the way that the Torah is requiring certain types of sacrifice or certain types of dress or attire or behavior, you're not actually part of the tribe. I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like on the ground for these different groups groups to look at one another, and even though the outside pagan world all saw them as Jews, to look at one another and say, not really Jews. This is one of the great challenges of studying this period. Very often, when viewed from a modern perspective, religion represents some kind of ideological uniformity. That's often what we expect to find within it. In the case of Judaism of this Second Temple period, you did indeed have major differences among groups. We'll give the example of Philo of Alexandria, who was actually, although indirectly, related by marriage to the Herods. He lived in Alexandria. He functioned in a philosophical idiom. And he wrote an entire commentary on the Torah, pursuing the argument that in order to understand the Torah, you had to understand Plato. And in order to understand Plato, you had to understand the Torah. He represents what is often called Hellenistic Judaism. Now, today, that phrase is sometimes used as if it represented some kind of compromise Judaism. But within the period, those who practiced in the vein of Philo understood that the whole treasure of Judaism was something that could be communicated by means of philosophy. And this became an important impetus to Christianity at a later stage. Another group, the group that we come to call the Sadducees, saw the temple as being the very center of interest and they, in opposition to one of Herod the Great's sons, whose name was Archelaus, they, in opposition to him becoming king, actually pleaded with the Romans to install a Roman administrator rather than put one of the family of Herod on the throne again. That obviously represents a stunning political development within the entire theology of Judaism. As you mentioned, in the case of the Essenes, they believed that although worship in the temple was central to the practice of Judaism, 
the calendar had to be changed. And they also believed that there were features of the architecture of the temple and the setup of the altar, which also required correction in order for that to become fully valid. The Pharisees thought that they, who had a particular view of purity, should be able to dictate the way in which priests and even Herodians conducted themselves inside the temple. And sometimes this resulted in violence. For example, in the last year of his life, the Pharisees, thinking that Herod the Great was weakened as a result of his disease, had their disciples crawl up one of the porticos of the temple in order to hack down an eagle that Herod the Great had installed there as one of his symbols of power. They saw that as idolatrous. Well, they hacked it down, but as a result, Herod the Great had them executed. And this was a pattern that was repeated time and again during the course of this period. There was a passionate dedication to the particular constructions of Judaism that these groups had. But the Herodians had their construction of Judaism too, which they were pressing. There are examples of Herod the Great actually convincing Pharisees that they should stop trying to oppose him. And he would use many different kinds of arguments. Sometimes he would use the argument of political force, but sometimes he would actually appeal to them on the basis of argument. There's so much here that I want to dig into. One thing in particular that jumps out is, you know, when we look at the gospel accounts, and if that's the only account that we get of Herod and the line of succession of the Herodians, one of the things that comes out is the bloodthirstiness of Herod. And you've mentioned this at points in our conversation, the fact that the Herod the Great and his successors utilized propaganda, and others in the ancient world were utilizing propaganda and subterfuge against each other, in addition to indiscriminate bloodshed. So when we look at an account of Herod there in the Gospels, we see a kind of bloodthirsty tyrant, a kind of almost bestial kinds of slaughter. But that's actually not far from what Herod actually did and what his successors actually did. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the balance between telling stories of bestial slaughter and the actual bestial slaughter. How is fact and propaganda playing together here? They are very important considerations, and it does seem clear that not only the Herods, but also the Romans and the Seleucids and after them, the Parthians. And we can include Cleopatra within this equation. We're fully capable of using brutal force against their adversaries. The recourse to violence of this kind was an ambient part of the political scene of the period. At the same time, there are also moments when certain rulers acted with unaccountable cruelty. Examples that come to mind include the decision of the emperor Nero to unleash a pogrom against a group called the Christians 
after the fire in Rome. Seems quite clear that the amount of devastation inflicted was an attempt to cover up for his own involvement in the arson and that he was engaging in scapegoating. Another example of this is the son of Herod the Great, Archelaus, who I think of all the progeny of Herod was the one who engaged in cruelty at moments when he really did not have to. So, for example, when he wanted to increase the size of his palace in the area of Jericho, he engaged in genocide. He destroyed entire villages and also cut people off from their sources of water with devastating results. It's for this very reason that I think when you look at the chronology and of the policies of the different members of the Herodian family, Archelaus is much more likely the ruler at the time of what we presently call the slaughter of the innocents within the New Testament. Because the New Testament was written from the margins of power, it often confuses one Herod with another, and sometimes just calls them Herod when in fact you're dealing with differing figures. Uh, one of the purposes uh, of this book is to sort out one Herod from another. Uh, it's an illustration of the way that the New Testament is written from the margins of any kind of influence. And for that reason, whoever the ruler is at a given time can often seem a matter of indifference. The New Testament sometimes treats different Herods the way the Hebrew Bible treats different pharaohs. It, in, in fact, doesn't matter to them which individual is the person in power. The difficulty historically, of course, is that these groups, whether they're Christian or Jewish, are reacting to political exertions of force on behalf of the Romans. So we who are trying to understand how these materials developed, need, we need to understand which Herod is involved. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary Magdalene, and James. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, politics, and the art of succession. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary Magdalene, and James. 
Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Well, in my own sort of catechesis as a Christian and in my sort of study of Christianity, I have oftentimes been caught up in the narrative that says that Bethlehem was a little backwater place and it was really unknown to the Roman Empire and it really didn't factor much and that that is why Jesus chose to be born in this lowly place that was on the edge of the edge of the action. What I learned from your book, The Herods, completely upended that idea. In particular, one of the things that struck me very clearly was that Herod the Great himself had a decisive battle in the course of retreating and consolidating his power at Bethlehem. It wouldn't have been an unknown area to him at all. And I also learned that Herod the Great had many opportunities to go to Rome and advocate for his power and for the consolidation of his power to the emperor himself, Emperor Antony at the time. So I'd love to hear about my impression that Bethlehem was some sort of backwater unknown place, how it actually was understood by the sort of global power at the time. Yeah, it's the whole issue of the way in which Herod the Great came to power shows Herod's deep awareness of conditions on the ground in Judea and also his extraordinary skill in being able to deal with the occupying Roman power. At the time that we are speaking about, Herod the Great is actually making a retreat from the area that his father, Antipater, had established as their particular domain. Herod the Great had been appointed to Galilee. His brother, Phazael, had been appointed to govern Jerusalem. And Antipater himself oversaw the whole and also principally lived in Idumea. But the years before this retreat had been extraordinarily difficult. Antipater himself had been assassinated by a conspirator. The Parthians had killed Phazael. Julius Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March. And then Herod had to face a member of the Maccabean family, whose name was Antigonus, who aligned himself with the Parthians. So you have one high priestly figure, Antigonus, allied with the Parthians of the East, and Herod, the now the elder surviving son of Antipater, trying to establish his rule with Roman protection while you have this seismic change going on in Rome as a result of the death of Julius Caesar. Following that death, there was the second triumvirate formed of Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus. And Herod does his best to ingratiate himself, particularly to the Roman general Antony, who at that time was the leading figure of the second triumvirate. But to do that, he has to survive. And as a result of that, He retreats from Jerusalem, goes near 
to Bethlehem, as you say, and then has to go towards a hill, which later on he will name after himself and built a major installation on. Because at that site, uh, he managed to defeat the combined forces of Antigonus, his enemy, and the Parthians by ambushing them literally on the other side of this hill. It was a remarkable military action. However, it was not a triumph. He was simply permitting himself to survive. He had to leave the area. He left through Egypt, encountering Cleopatra there, and then had to make his way to Rome. It was in Rome that the two leading members of the Second Triumvirate, Antony and Octavian, who later became Augustus, present Herod to the Roman Senate to be their client king in Judea. That is how the family became royal for the first time. It might have been possible to Antipate, for Antipater to ask the same favor of Julius Caesar, but he never did. He was happy for a lesser role than king. Herod the Great, however, the most ambitious member of the family, took the opportunity, was named king in the year 40, and then, with Roman support, had to make his way back to Judea and actually win power on the ground. So within this whole development, Bethlehem is one geographical location known reasonably well to the Romans. And by the way, it's a location that is very far from Nazareth, the place where Jesus actually grew up. For that reason, in an earlier work called Rabbi Jesus, I have argued that the likely Bethlehem of Jesus' birth is not in Judea, not this place which by the time of Jesus' birth was extremely well-known, but rather Bethlehem in Galilee, a different village that you could actually walk to from Nazareth, unlike Bethlehem in Judea, which would require a major journey of more than 100 miles. One of the things also that fascinated me about this, and you just talked about how Herod the Great consolidated power and became a king, a client king of the Romans, but I also learned from your book, The Herods, that it was the Maccabees that actually made the first alliances with the then-growing Roman Empire in order to consolidate power against other empires that were vying for control on the ground there in the various territories. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this connection between the Maccabees and Rome. This is one of the most interesting facets of the story, isn't it? At the time of the rise of the Maccabees, in opposition, as I said, to the Seleucids, the Roman Republic, as it then was, was a growing power, but not yet a major power in the region. As a result, when the Maccabees declared their independence, they made a treaty of alliance with the Romans. And this treaty is actually included within the documents of the Maccabean court. And the agreement is that if anyone should act as an aggressor towards the Maccabees, the Romans will help them and vice versa. 
In many ways at this time, the treaty is of a theoretical nature since they are too not dependent, but too marginally independent powers. In their recognition of one another, there's a kind of mutual aid. Over time, of course, as Roman hegemony grows, the result will be that they will be on the ground in what had been Israel, and in the person of the general Pompey, would actually claim it all for themselves in the year 63, before the Common Era. But at the time of the alliance, there was mutual recognition, and mutual recognition meant that you recognized one another's religions. So the Romans come to see what they call the religio judaiorum, the religion of the Jews, as being a legal religion. This is an extraordinary adjustment because it means that Jews living in the Roman area, which became the Roman Empire, could not be required, as other subjects and citizens were, could not be required to offer sacrifice and allegiance to the gods of Rome. This caused enormous jealousy, and the fact was that ancient anti-Semitism was a major concern. But although it existed, it was not a matter of Roman law. Rome did protect Judaism, and it became the policies of certain emperors to see to it that should be the case. Part of the reason that Augustus had a very warm and long-lasting relationship with Herod the Great was that he saw this settlement with Judaism as being profoundly important. That was the reason for which, in addition, that there was support for the various building activities of Herod the Great, which included the extension of the Second Temple. Now, within that temple, there was also an agreement that Rome regarded as profoundly important. As I said, Rome recognized that Jews could not be offering sacrifice to the gods and goddesses of Rome. Also, they could not be swearing an oath of allegiance to the emperor because that was understood as an act of sacrifice. As a result, the Romans arranged that within the temple in Jerusalem, twice a day, there would be an offering presented by the priests on behalf of the emperor. Instead of worshiping the emperor, you offered worship for the sake of the emperor. This meant that Rome had a dedicated interest in the way in which the temple was run. And if that interest was not observed, Rome was capable of acting immediately. This is exactly what happened in the 60s, which is when the, the war against the Romans broke out. There had been various activities against the long, local Roman forces in Jerusalem, but the Senate itself reacted at a precise moment. That was the moment when the person in charge of the temple 
whose name was Eliezer the Sagan in the year 66, announced that he would not accept any gift from a non-Jew. That included the emperor. The Senate understood that this was an act of sedition. And so they endorsed the sending of the legions. And the very tight relationship between the order of the temple and the agreement with Rome, which also helps us to explain the difficulty that Jesus faced when it was possible for Caiaphas, the high priest, to charge Jesus with causing a upset in the temple, which could breach the agreement with Rome. Uh, this explains why Pontius Pilate acted as he did. Rome, in a remarkable way, favored Judaism, even as anti-Semitism was a factor in the empire. And one can see this particularly clearly at the very end of the Herodian dynasty in the person of Berenike, Herod the Great's great-granddaughter, who was the lover and very nearly the wife of the Roman emperor Titus. Had that marriage come off at the very end of the first century, that would have put Judaism within the Roman Empire in the kind of position that Christianity acquired during the fourth century. Well, and I want to follow on with this because in your epilogue to the book, The Herods, you actually carry this ambivalence that we're talking about, where Judaism is not just anti-Roman, but there is a kind of truce between the Roman Empire and Jewish consolidated power in the ancient world. You carry this forward into Christianity, and you note that you know Christianity itself had an anti-Roman element, a revolutionary element, but also there were elements in Christianity that very much kind of hewed towards Rome and accepted Roman power. I'd love to hear, as we're closing our conversation, about am I correct in reading a parallel between the ambivalence in Herodian times and the ambivalence that we see bearing out in Christianity? Yes, I think that is exactly the case, because... Romans and Herodians both understood that they could treat the followers of Jesus in a way that was different from their treatment of Judaism as a whole. There was a way of singling them out, of scapegoating them. We can see that in the case of Claudius with his treatment of Jews in Rome. We can see it in the case of Nero, who I already mentioned in connection with the fire. We can see it in the case of Herod Agrippa I, who was responsible for the killing of James, the son of Zebedee. And later on, we'll see it in the case of the procurator Felix in the arrest of Paul. These are all examples of how it seems possible to some Herodians, some Romans, to single out Christians and treat them as different from Jews, which in some sense is an innovative adjustment. One reason for that adjustment is that there are Christian leaders like James, son of Zebedee, just as there are Jewish leaders during this period who are indeed opposed to Rome. 
who see the way in which Rome functions as being at odds with the way that God's kingdom is to be revealed upon the earth. This was part of the genius of Jesus' answer to the question of whether or not taxes should be paid to Rome. When he showed the coin and pointed out that Caesar's image is on it and that therefore it can be given back to Caesar, what he was saying is that there is a reserve of those things which are not owed back to Caesar. There is a line of demarcation. He's speaking not as someone who is legislating. Jesus is speaking as someone who is on the very margins of power, attempted to negotiate how to cope with a much greater force than he would ever be able to bring together. So that Christianity had to negotiate the same marginal stance in regard to power that was true of Judaism as a whole. Sometimes teachers such as Paul thought that the best way forward was to insist, as he argues in his letter to the Romans, that accommodation with Rome as representing ultimately the justice of God is the best way forward. Interestingly, however, Paul himself changed his position a few years after he wrote his letter to the Romans when he wrote in his letter to the Philippians that our citizenship, our political status is in fact in heaven, not on earth. So what we can see there is that even those who wished to accommodate to Rome at the end of the day had to accept that there is always a negotiation. That is, political rule involves the invocation of authority over a given territory. But acknowledgement of the divine also involves and authority. The relationship between those two is not simple. And I would say that arguing that you can simply separate them is ultimately not viable because you have to ask, how do they relate to one another? The issue is one of negotiation rather than separation. And I would say that one of the positive examples of Herodian rule is how it is possible for politics and religion to coexist, and even during most of this period, to thrive. Well, Bruce Chilton, I have to say, I just had all of my expectations about this particular period of time and how this history factored into the Gospels upended when I read your book, The Herods. And I want to say to my listeners, if you enjoy intrigue and really well-written sweeps of history, your book, The Herods, has Game of Thrones-type epic sweep to it, and it is written so well. It was so readable. I learned so much. I hope that all my listeners read your book and learn from your book because it really helps to flesh out the history of a time where we think we know what we're reading in the Gospels, but we really do not. I'm so grateful you took the time to research it and to write it, but thank you especially, Professor Chilton, for taking the time to talk to us about it today. I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you, David.
We've been speaking today with Bruce Chilton. He's the Bernard Iddings Bell Professor of Religion at Bard College, where he has taught since 1987. In addition to his many celebrated publications on the texts, practices, and beliefs of ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's also the author of popular historical biographies of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary Magdalene, and James. Today we've been talking about his recent book, The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.